Welcome to the Turkey Hunter Podcast with me, your host, Andy Galliano. In this podcast, I share with turkey hunters just like you how to have more turkeys on your hunting property and how to have more successful turkey hunts. I teach you how to do this with tips and interviews with turkey hunting pros, wildlife management tips, and entertaining turkey hunting stories. Tune in weekly as I share proven and simple strategies to help you have more success this turkey season. Make sure to head over to www.iamturkeyhunting.com to subscribe to receive free turkey hunting tips, tactics, strategies, and product reviews. Also, please visit and like my Facebook fan page. Go to Facebook and search I Am Turkey Hunting. And also feel free to post your turkey hunting photos from this past season and let us know where and when you killed your bird. For all of you Twitter users out there, please follow me on Twitter where my handle is at turkeyhitman, and I will be sure to follow you back. And now, for this week's show. Hello and welcome back to this week's episode of the Turkey Hunter Podcast. You are listening to episode number 139, Habitat Management for Wild Turkeys with Grant Woods. And I am your host and the guy who is going to share with you a pretty cool wild turkey story at the end of the show. Well, today we are 266 days, 8 hours, 59 minutes, and 48 seconds away from opening day of spring turkey season in Alabama. And last week I shared some of the things that I learned this past spring while hunting small parcels of property. And one of the things that I shared was how important managing the habitat on those smaller parcels is especially having a food source on that parcel. I also mentioned I was going to be bringing you more on managing habitat for wild turkeys. And today, you guessed it, that is exactly what I have for you guys. So today I have an interview with Grant Woods with Growing Deer TV. And I know what you're thinking. Hey, this is a turkey hunting podcast. Why are you interviewing someone from Growing Deer TV? Well, because Grant knows what he's talking about when it comes to habitat management, and he's practicing what he preaches. Or maybe he's preaching what he's practicing. Either way, he knows this stuff, and since he's made a long career of habitat management and devising plans for landowners, and he's very passionate and knowledgeable about turkey hunting as well, I knew he was a great person to interview for the show. And without further ado... Here is Grant Woods with Growing Deer TV, and I will see you guys on the other side. Hey everybody, I am very excited today because I've got a special guest on the line with me who is going to talk to us about habitat management and a little bit about planning as well for wild turkeys. And I'm really excited about it because this is something that I'm starting to pay more attention to, not only on the property that I own, which, as you guys know who listen to the show regularly, is a very small parcel of property, but some of the things that I can do to help improve the habitat for turkeys on some of my leased properties as well. So I have on the line today Grant Woods, who is with Growing Deer TV. And Grant, how are you and where are you today? Hey, you know, I'm well. Thanks for having me, Andy. And I'm in Branson, Missouri. I live just north of Branson, Missouri. I'm from the area and went off to school at Georgia and Clemson. And then my wife and I found a piece of property for sale back here 15 years ago. And we've raised our family and lived here. 
awesome. That's fantastic. Well, hopefully the majority of the people listening to the show have been to your website or seen some of your videos on YouTube and are familiar with you. So you live there on what you call the Proving Grounds? We do. We, okay. we, we didn't have any money like a lot of young couples, so, and we wanted some acreage, both farm kids, and I'm, I'm a wildlife biologist by training. We were living in, <clears throat> excuse me, in South Carolina, bringing on about 13 acres and wanted more acreage. And when we returned home just to visit family, my wife happened to pick up a real estate guide and found what was basically an old burned out cattle ranch for sale. And we were able to negotiate and end up buying that ranch. And I mean, it was the bottom of the barrel. And, and mm-hmm. to really illustrate literally how bottom of the barrel it was, it's all we could afford. I walk a lot. I, I walk for exercise because I'm a kidney transplant patient and I have to keep my weight down and I don't want to go to the gym. So I go out and walk every day. So bought this thing is for a Google Earth course. And I had a topo map and I get out and walk every morning learning land and, you know, just marking off the map where I walked. And in that first year, I saw one deer. I saw a tail going wow. around a cedar tree in in a year. Wow. And, 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 and to put that in scale, folks, we were on 1,500 acres and I saw one deer. Hmm. So that's where the name The Proving Grounds come from because if the wildlife management techniques that's worked here, rocky, overgrazed, high-graded timber, Ozark Mountains, it should work anywhere. And and we have, after 15 years, of course, guys, we have hundreds of turkeys now and way too many deer and harvest large deer. And it's just really been fun to watch that habitat turn around. Yeah. Well, and not only fun to watch it turn around, but know that, that you are one of the driving forces behind that. Of course, Mother Nature has a lot to do with it, but you've been working hand in hand with Mother Nature to get it to turn around. So that's got to be very, very nice to, or very rewarding, I should say, to see that happen over the period of years. That has been, a, you know, it has been, and my family's been involved, and we've raised daughters doing this, so it's just been a, a great life. Yeah, good deal. Well, my next question was for you to tell us a little bit about yourself. I don't know if you've got anything more that you want to go into detail with that, but also to tell us how you got into turkey hunting. Yeah, let's just go right to the turkey hunting. You know, I, I was raised on a farm about an hour from here, a small farm, and just always loved the outdoors. There were no deer in the county, and we quail hunted and rabbit hunted. And I, I still remember the very first deer I found, uh, someone had, had poached a deer, and I found it running my rabbit traps, little live rabbit traps one morning for school. I found this poached female fawn in one of our little fields. Went and got my dad, and it was cold in the winter. We drug it up to the hog house, and he come up from work. We skinned it out, and and I guess I started fantasizing, if you will, about deer, maybe being able to deer hunt someday, just seeing a deer. Yeah. And and then there was turkeys in another part of the state, and we'd drive over there and turkey hunt, and just you know, just always was drawn to that type of stuff. And finally, they got turkeys restored in my area and could hunt a little closer to home. And then went down to Georgia and South Carolina to go to school, and you know, boy, that's turkey, big time turkey hunting down there. Those guys take it really seriously, and sort of started calling with some of those guys and hunting public land down there and really competitive hunting and and just uh, really, really enjoy turkey hunting. Yeah, and you've got several videos on your website of your guys that work for you turkey hunting, but also you've got some with your dad in them, and I, I enjoy seeing those. Those are always a lot of fun. My dad got me into hunting, and so, you know, anytime I see someone hunting with their dad, like you guys hunt together, I just, you know, you can't help but smile when you watch Well, that, thank so. you. You know, my dad is 86. He's still my best friend. He was my best man at my wedding. And so, yeah, we get him out hunting all we can. He had a pretty bad bout of cancer last year. Seems to be recovering pretty well, and he's really excited. He tagged two turkeys this spring and excited for deer season this fall. So he's he's really excited about that. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, I want to talk to you because a lot of people listening to the show are like me, and they own a little piece of land. and 
those that don't own some land do lease some. And so I know there's some techniques that we can do to improve the habitat on those leased pieces of property, just like the ones that we have complete control over. So I wanted to talk to you about that. And really, I'm, I put these questions together and then I got to thinking, I said, you know, after I read back through them, I thought, I mean, I'm basically going to be asking Grant all about managing habitat for wild turkey so why not just pretend like it's one parcel like it Mm -hmm. would be if i were managing my little piece of heaven that i own in central alabama so let's pretend we have a thousand acres i'm sorry let's pretend we have a hundred acres i was getting real excited there i was going for a thousand acres and let's just say as hard as this is to do because it's not exactly real world and and we'll dip back and forth in this real world versus what i would like let's pretend we've got a hundred acre island Mm -hmm. because i know we when we have a hundred acres and we're trying to manage that we need to look at our neighbors properties as well don't we we do you know turkeys tend to have pretty large home range they move around a lot they're they're very driven by the, the most convenient food source and, and, of course, brood habitat and nesting habitat are critical. So we want to consider all those factors. Yeah. And as much as we do need to consider them, those, what the neighbor's properties look like and what the neighbors do with their properties, we have zero control over. So, you know, that's why I kind of want to look at this like, all right, in the fake world, in our dream world of a hundred acre island where we have no neighbors, what would we like to do? And then we'll kind of dip into maybe what is the real world where we do Mm -hmm. have neighbors on some of this. So let's take our hundred acre island that has basically not been touched, but we have some deer and we have some turkeys on it. For turkeys, how much of that hundred acre island would you say needs to be fields and how much would need to be in timber? Yep. Great, great question. You know, when I was a, a boy here in Missouri, we're skipped right into reality just a second. All the turkeys were in the southern part of the state, basically in the rugged Ozark Mountains where they couldn't be hunted out. Mm-hmm. And, and there were no turkeys in northern Missouri, no turkey season, no turkeys in northern Missouri. And as they started restocking the counties in southern Missouri and getting successful populations, somebody said, well, gosh, I wonder, is any chance at all they'd make it in northern Missouri? And they put some up there. And now there's way more turkeys in northern Missouri. And, and we've learned that Turkeys do great with, you know, 70, 80 percent open area and, and 10, 20 percent, 30 percent timber to, to roost in. Mm-hmm. And the really only thing turkeys are using that timber for is roosting, predator avoidance, blah, blah, blah. But they're making a living on the ground, as you know, all day long. That's where their food and cover is. And under a full canopy forest, there's not a lot of food or cover for turkey. That's not really good turkey habitat. And all right. the old, great southern turkey books written from chasing those gobblers back in the swamp, whatever. Those are great. I love reading them, but they're about chasing one or two gobblers and not like driving through Kansas and literally seeing a thousand turkeys in a flock, literally. Right. So open land is much more productive for turkeys than closed canopy timber. So, you know, if I had a small property, I'd want at least 50% open. And open doesn't mean, you know, bare ground, but it means a combination of of nesting habitat and production fields and stuff like that. Okay. So then of that say 50% that you've got in open or in fields, we'll, we'll put it that way. Is there a certain percentage that you would turn into nesting habitat? Yeah, there sure is. You know, I, I think nesting habitat is critical and it's so often overlooked because it's not hunting habitat. And they don't think about a food. It's almost like sanctuaries for deer. People want to overlook it. It's not as glamorous. Mm-hmm. And, and nesting habitat is something that's relatively thick but needs some bare ground in there so turkeys and turkey poults can get around, you know, zero to two feet tall. 
then you know, ten feet tall does a turkey no good. It's that right. first couple of feet off the ground. And ideally, it's just tall enough that they can periscope or look right over the top of it to look for predators, and then duck back down and be totally concealed. Okay. And and without good nesting habitat, that per- turkey population is not going to thrive and and build up in population. They're, they're just going to be really vulnerable to predation and other factors. Yeah. Okay. Is that nesting habitat, and I know we're talking about a small piece of property, a small parcel of property, relatively speaking, into a turkey's range, but is that something that you would try to manage with prescribed fire to to maybe rotate an area out, you know, on a three-year rotation or something like that? How how are you going to maintain yeah, I, that? I'm not as worried about rotating out. I probably would, in most instances, use prescribed fire. We use it an awful lot here at the Proving Grounds. And if you think about it, if you start burning, especially that far south and late January, early February, you're going to have enough growth back to be great nesting and even brood habitat by nesting and brood season. Now, we burn here every spring, and we burn early before nesting and brooding season. And, you know, those young early successional plants grow quickly. So ragweed, which, you know, sounds yucky, but is a tremendous turkey habitat type plant. It's, it makes what we call umbrella cover, thick on top, open underneath. Mm-hmm. So turkeys move freely underneath ragweed. Usually there's a lot of soft insects under ragweed, and turkeys make a living on soft insects. So it's great turkey habitat. And so that, that fire can be used to bring back early succession habitat. And if you burn it early enough in the late winter, early spring, it's great habitat that year. I'm, I'm not missing a rotation. I don't want to burn late May or something because I'm going to be burning up some nests or poults or something like that. And, you know, another consideration is we want those areas to be large enough that a predator, let's say a raccoon or a coyote, can't just troll downwind of our of that block of habitat and smell all the turkeys in there. And we all know that a wet hen has a lot of odor. She's easy to smell. It's called the wet hen theory that predators, after if it rains a lot during nesting season, there's usually a real small hatch because predators just follow those hens to the nest so easy and disrupt the nest. Mm-hmm. So I, I like my turkey areas, you know, literally cover areas like that, 10, 20 acres, not two acres or five acres. I call those predator food plots. Yes, fawns will be born in there and turkeys will be born in there, but very few survival. And this research was actually done in Mississippi State. Back in the old days, SMZs or stream management zones were really popular and people would leave a small, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 yard buffer along a little stream, little streamlet and not cutting trees off there. And that's great for stopping siltation and real estate looks and stuff like that. But what happened is the turkeys would all leave the pine plantation and go nest in that streamside management zone where there was some thicker cover. And it's so narrow, any predator going on downwind side smelled every turkey in there and wiped them out. They just become predator hunting zones. Yeah. Yeah, and and they definitely catch on to that. I mean, the predators, they're making a living from doing just that, from preying on the, the critters that we like to chase. Oh, yes, like they're very efficient. Them. You know, just guys, just yeah. last week, or I think it was last week, week before, there was a, one of Wildlife Society publications, and someone had put some cameras on bears in moose habitat up in Alaska. Mm-hmm. And everyone always thought, you know, bears kill a few moose calves, but not that many. And, and, and these bears were averaging one point some odd moose calves a day. And within two hours, there was no sign there was ever a moose calf there. Everything was consumed. Wow. And so during the moose fawning season, an average bear was killing over 30 moose calves. Holy cow. Well, it didn't take a lot of bear to, you know, to really hurt a moose population and that type of predation. Yeah, yeah, definitely. All right, so, and I may be nitpicking, and it's okay to say if I am. In these fields or open areas that we're going to have on our 100-acre island, is there 
any benefit to shaping those fields a certain way where we have more field edge? No, I don't think so. Actually, I, I, you know, ideally I would have a circle so there's more in the middle, further away from predators, and less edge. You know, edge okay. is a great thing for wildlife. There's no doubt about that. But we got to remember more edge or a star shape or something that spreads it out. It's just easier for predators to smell all the way through there. Okay. And and don't discount predators. I mean, they are a huge, huge factor on landscape. Fur prices have been horribly low for several years now. People are not trapping at all like they used to. They just can't make even come close to making a profit. And so predators are a huge factor, especially down south. Everyone knows there's a gazillion coons running around. And when you sure. develop a lot of edge, you're making it ideal predator habitat. Okay. All right. So really then the predators are working those edges more so than they are just right down the middle of a field. And, oh, yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. no trapper wades in the middle to set a trap. He's going to trap on the edge or a road crossing or something like that. Yeah. Those are those are predator highways, just like the edge has stream management zone. That's going to be a predator highway. Okay. All right. So... I want to, I want to, I guess, touch on something and then, or go back and touch on something that, that you mentioned and then we'll, we'll move on. You mentioned that you don't like the growing season burn. You know, here's what I do on our land. Uh, and the older I get, the more I follow this, but I burn when it's dry. It really doesn't matter to me what month it is because I, I can't burn all my property at once. So if I happen to burn one little area and there has to be a nest or two in there, but I'm improving the habitat for a lot of other species in the following year there. But natural fires, and, and, you know, what is natural? Everyone throws this word natural out, and I've yet to find a really good definition. So I've come up with the definition. Natural is what occurred here in North America pre-European settlement. Okay. Not pre-Native American settlement, but pre-European settlement, because Native Americans kind of more or less ebbed and flow with these things and moved around very, very mobile, moved around a lot. And so if we look at fire scars and really good data, we find that it wasn't this nice three- to five-year interval that the universities talk about or blah, blah, blah. That's great if you can work it out. rarely works out because of weather conditions. When it's dry, there was probably a lightning strike or an Indian campfire got out, whatever happened, and it burned. And we know from the fire scars, it didn't burn like what we do. It may burn 70 miles long and 100 miles wide. It was a big, big fire converting huge blocks of land into better habitat, not little 20 acres at a time. So we burn here when it's dry. We, we, we burn, we have burned in almost every month out of the year here at the Proving oh, wow. Grounds. And what you find is when you burn at different months, you get a much different vegetative response. And that diversity is, of course, critical for wildlife. So, you know, we burn in spring, we're more likely to get a response from native grasses. We burn in the fall, we get more forbs, native legumes, plants mm-hmm. that are very beneficial to wildlife. So, you know, if I had my rathers, I'd be burning in August, but I burn whenever it's dry enough to have a good fire. Okay. All right. That's very interesting. So I've been reading up a little bit on prescribed fire, and mm-hmm. uh, and it seems like some of the more recent studies that have been done are showing that as far as turkeys are concerned, that the growing season burns seem to be more beneficial in the long yep. run. And you, you get more you, you, Growing season burns reduce hardwoods more, especially right. hardwood saplings, which is usually good turkey management, and encourage more of these like partridge pea and, and other really beneficial native forbs. Native yeah. grass is wonderful cover. I love it. But if you spring burn, spring burn, spring burn, you're fine that you can't control the hardwood saplings coming in and you end up with a stand of about pure grass after a time. When you burn in the fall, you tend to get a lot better species diversity, especially these forbs, and you do a better job of setting back hardwood saplings, which is critical for turkey habitat. And by the way, deer habitat too. Very good. All right. So in our fields on this 
hundred acre island that we have, our fields that we've created, what would you recommend as far as planting in those fields that we were going to plant some sort of crop? Would you plant? Well, clover greens up. It's one of the first quality forages to green up in the spring. And anyone's turkey in the much around clover fields has probably killed a, a turkey or two that their crop was just full of clover. So I, I like about 10% of my food plot acreage in clover, you know, and there's no exact ratio, but somewhere around 10. Mm-hmm. Because when clover is really growing and productive, gosh, it takes a very small acreage to feed a lot of critters. Right. And when it's hot and dry and clover is dormant or too cold and clover is dormant, it doesn't matter if you got the whole 100 acres of clover, it's not going to be food there. So when clover is productive, it doesn't take very many acres. And when it's not productive, it doesn't matter how many acres you have. So I like about 10% of my food plot acreage or my property, uh, I'm really food plot acreage in clover. And then I'm a huge soybean fan for turkeys. I mean, it makes an awesome umbrella cover, right? Bare below, big umbrella Mm -hmm. comes on top. It attracts a lot of beneficial insects, but these soft insects like spiders and whatnot are great turkey food. And of course, when it makes grain, they love it. They absolutely love it and prosper on it. It's high in oil, high in fat, does really well. So it's hard to beat a combination of a small percentage of your food pots in clover and a much larger percent in soybeans and you might overseed that soybean plot with something in the fall mm-hmm. okay all right so some sort of a grass at that point a, a grain yeah small grain like a cereal rye or a mixture of a cereal rye and a crimson clover clover holds a lot of insects you see a lot of turkeys in clover not always because they're eating clover but they're bugging in there right Okay. Turkeys have an extremely varied diet. Uh, guys, they, they eat way more species of plants and animals than, than deer do. They're, they're not near as finicky as a deer. Okay. All right. And then I know the farmer would say, yes, rotate those crops out. Are you rotating your crops in your food plots? Yeah, you know, here at the Proven Grounds, I have fields that's had soybeans in them every year for 15 years now, and they're still growing great, doing well. But my, how I get away with that, my secret is I only no-till drill. I don't interrupt that natural cycle of fungi and bacteria that are healing and preparing the soil and moving nutrients around. And I always have a rotation in that I'm going to overseed those beans during the fall with a blend of, of you know, radishes and turnips and, and different brassicas and small grains, wheat, cereal, rye, stuff like that. So I am having a crop rotation. It's not one summer to the next summer. It's one part of the year to the next part of the year. I got you. Okay. And each of those crops that you're rotating out are, are using and adding different minerals to the soil. Yeah. You know, again, as I matured, like a lot of guys, I started planting food plots. I was just trying to find a way to attract critters. I didn't care about anything but attracting a critter to, you know, 20 yards broadside. And now I'm way more interested in building quality soil because without quality soil, my, my land's going to decline in quality. I'm going to contribute to erosion. I'm going to contribute to putting more carbon in the atmosphere. And my critters aren't going to be as healthy. So I plant cereal rye, not because deer or turkey eat the rye heads. I've never known that to happen because when I terminate that crop with a roller crimper, which stimulates a herd of buffalo going through there and trampling it down on the Great Prairie, I add a huge amount of organic matter to the soil. Mm-hmm. That organic matter is like a slow-release fertilizer providing nutrients for the next crop and doing a great job of holding soil moisture in place for the next crop. So I'm, I'm more interested in coming up with blends that A, feed the critters, and B, improve the soil than the old days where I just worried about if a critter eat it or not. Gotcha. Okay. And there is actually a lot of that that you're showing on the website now because it's that time of year where you're starting to crimp and... Yes, and and, A, we're doing it, and we we make a new show every week, 52 weeks a year, so we literally just show what we're doing. I don't have a program for next week right now, literally. We just show whatever we're doing that week. And B, I'm passionate 
about freely sharing with others how to inexpensively improve the soil. We haven't added any fertilizer here in four years because we've refined our crop rotation. Different crops like buckwheat is really good about mobilizing phosphorus and making it available to other plants. And, of course, soybeans are legume to add a lot of nitrogen. Over 70% of the air we breathe is nitrogen. Why would anyone ever pay for nitrogen? Over an acre, there's about 70 million pounds of nitrogen in the atmosphere over every acre of earth. Why would anyone ever pay to add a couple hundred pounds when there's more than you could ever use right there? It's got yeah. the right plants to convert it. Right. So so we're really into, myself personally, to improve the soil, and it's much cheaper to buy a blend of plants than to buy fertilizer or buy herbicide or something like that. Yeah, okay. All right, so let's step off of our island a little bit here. Mm -hmm. We have talked about what we would do in an ideal world, and the ideal world really doesn't exist because we do have those neighbors, and like I said earlier, we have no control over what those neighbors are doing, whether that's cutting timber or thinning timber or supplemental feeding, whatever it happens to be. So, But let's look at, at our overall plan. So today we have... 100 acres of trees. Our neighbors have 50% fields, 50% forest land. What would you recommend for our 100 acres at that point? Would you still go 50-50 on it? Yeah, I would. You know, what I want to do, and I'm, you know, no matter how much land you own, more land you own, the more neighbors you have or the more acres of contact you have with neighbors, literally. I mean, there's just no getting around it. So it doesn't matter if you're who you are, neighbors are always a factor. Mm -hmm. And so I want to create the best habitat on my property selfishly to encourage the critters to spend more hours of the day on my property. Right. And, and so I want that 50-50 that is just a great ratio. And we know that in places in Kentucky and Missouri and Kansas where there's just huge turkey populations, they end up being somewhere in that 50-50 range. It's not all ag and it's not all timber. Mm -hmm. It's a mix in between. And, you know, if you said, hey, Grant, I got, you know, 40-60, I would not say that's bad. But 50-50 sure. just works out well. Okay. And, and I would like that juxtaposed a little bit, or in other words, I don't want one side of the property, the west side, to be all timber and the east side to be all fields. I'd like that kind of mixed in there a little bit. Okay. And, oh. and then of that, I want some plenty of food, through, you know, food plots or crops, whatever, and I want an ample portion in nesting and or brood habitat. And nesting and brood habitat can be the same. Nesting habitat can get away with being a little thicker. Brood habitat needs a quite a bit of bare dirt or open ground because those little bee chicks, they're walking through six inches of fescue thatch or big, deep pile of hardwood leaves. They're just not going to make it. They're not going to be very mobile. Something's going to eat them. Hmm. So I, I like some bare ground, and that comes from having bunch-type plants like native grasses or other plants that have this umbrella habitat. And in those situations, usually have pretty high poult survival. Okay. And one of those you one of those plants you mentioned and that could be something we plant and that's soybeans. But getting soybeans to come up and, and get going by the time those poults are hashed is probably a challenge, isn't it? No, nah, I don't know. Out. I'm gonna plant soybeans when the soil temperature is fifty five degrees. It's specifically fifty five degrees at two inches deep at nine AM. Most states, including Alabama, have a website that shows you the soil temperature by county statewide. It's that important to ag. And the reason we want that, soybeans are a soft seed, a little bit weaker than like a corn or a clover. If you plant them when it's too cold, it takes so long to germinate, there's going to be some mortality before they germinate, and it stresses the plant. Just like a newborn baby that's not fed well, takes a long time to catch up with someone that had pre good prenatal health. Right. The same is true with the, that seed. We don't think about it, but you stress that seed out, it does some funky things to it, and the plant, when it matures, won't be as productive as, it, as if the plant got off to a great start. 
So I'm going to wait that soil temperature is about 55 degrees or warmer at about 2 inches deep at 9 a.m. And the reason we're talking 9 a.m. is because the soil cools all night long and it starts warming up about 9 a.m. when the sun gets high enough to put out enough radiant heat. Mm-hmm. And so we can get those soybeans in there pretty early. Now, I never disc my soybeans. Again, I never disc. I terminate the standing crop with a crimper or herbicide or whatever and drill right into it or broadcast right into it. So whatever my fall crop was will 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 be good turkey habitat also. Okay. All right. Again, talking about what our neighbors are doing, I mean, we have no control over what they're planning or anything, like I said. Yep. You're still going to stick to your plan as far as what you're planning and, and how you're managing your 100 acres in that scenario, no matter what the neighbors are doing. You're kind of looking, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're kind of looking at what the neighbors are doing as far as how their land lies, what water they may have on it, and that kind of thing to determine. Yep. You know, what you the, the worst thing a neighbor can do. If, especially in Missouri where it's illegal to feed during turkey season, the worst thing a neighbor can do is have feed out because turkeys are addicted to feed, especially shelled corn, worse than cocaine. I mean, they just, they're addicted to it. Mm-hmm. So, but neighbors that are going to just pile out a bunch of corn usually aren't making really good brooding habitat or nesting habitat or strutting areas or whatever. They're just counting on the corn. So there's no doubt if my neighbor, and this happens to me here in Missouri, my neighbor pours out a bag of corn 100 yards off the line or whatever, I can't keep the turkeys from going to it. But they're not going to spend all day there. Right. And then I've got the best breeding habitat, nesting habitat, whatever it is. They're going to be there in the morning or come back later on in the day, whatever it is, and utilize that better habitat. Yeah. If you're in a state that allows feeding baiting and your neighbor's got a big old corn pile out, it's almost it's just it's hard to say, tough to, for me to admit, but you almost have to have a corn pile out in the middle of your property. You don't even have to hunt around it because otherwise the turkey is going over there to that addiction called yellow corn. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. just a fact. Yeah. I wish states, I've said this on record many times in state meetings and scientific meetings, but I wish they'd get on the same page and, and enforce it. If, if there's no baiting, great. Enforce it where everyone plays on a level playing field. If there is baiting, then then let people bait, but don't be in the middle because it's just not fair to the landowners. Right, yeah. And what you just said, I witnessed firsthand when we went to Texas several years ago, turkey hunting. It was actually the second time I went to Texas. We hunted this ranch, and I can't remember how many acres the ranch was total, but the ranch owner basically turned the ranch over to us when we got there and said, here are the property boundaries. You guys enjoy it. You know, I'll see you in three days. Mm -hmm. And what we saw was the turkeys would roost on his property along the creek that ran through his property. Turkeys would roost there in the evenings. In the mornings, they would fly down, and they would make a beeline for the neighbor's property. And I found a spot where the turkeys were coming underneath the fence to and from the neighbor's property and Mm -hmm. just happened to look down there with my binoculars and saw the corn feeder down there with corn on the ground and i said well, oh, well that's that explains it perfectly so mm-hmm. i sat down there in a matter of an hour and killed a turkey and then went back the next day and sat down and a matter of an hour killed another turkey as they were going yep. back and forth yep so they're worse than deer i, I believe they're more conditionable than deer they yeah. just they just it, it's it's a bad addiction they have to corn or other supplements and Anyway, yeah. but if my neighbor's doing that, you know, I can't do anything about it. And so I'm just going to have the best habitat knowing that they're going to come back to my habitat. Right. Yeah. And if you're planting the right things and, and you've got those plants that are high in nitrogen there and they're drawing those insects in, then like you said, they're, they've got that diverse appetite and what they, what they eat is so varied that they're going to be in 
to the corn probably in the morning and maybe in bugs in the afternoon. So yeah, they're gonna come back. They're gonna go. hens are gonna go to the best nesting area at that time of year. Hens are gonna find the best nesting area in their home range. And they're very there's a pecking order there. The more mature hens will get the better nesting sites, and the less mature will be on the fringes of it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Very good. Well, you've taught me a lot. And you've taught me that, or I guess really I already knew this, that I don't have enough time to, to spend out on my little piece of property doing what I want to do. <laughs> but I, you know, and I probably none of us do, that. but what we can do and what I do all the time or tell people to do is identify the most limiting factor. You can't do it all. None of us usually don't have the time or budget. But identify the most limiting factor. Is that water? Is talking about turkeys? Is that brood cover, nest cover, strut areas? You know, a great thing to do is just reduce predators. Turkeys and deer both really sense where they're safer. Their number one motivating factor is not breeding, not food, but safety, literally. And so if you have reduced predators on your 100 acres and your neighbors haven't trapped a coon in 20 years, turkeys will pick up on that. And there's lots of research that shows this. Yeah. So one of the things we did at Proven Grounds is we trap very aggressively every trapping season and remove a lot of predators, about 60 a year. Yeah, okay. And you would recommend, of course, trapping right before and right during the nesting season and, and brood rearing yep. season. Yeah, if legal where you are in Missouri, we have to stop trapping at the end of January, which is unfortunate. But states where you can trap during fawning or nesting season, you have a lot higher success of getting those poults and fawns up to maturity. Yeah, okay. Very good. Well, tell us a little bit about Growing Deer TV, where we can find it, and what you guys have going on currently. Yeah. You know, guys, I'm a consulting biologist. I, I didn't like the university system. I don't like politics. So just when I finished my doctorate degree, I, by that time I had enough clients. I just kind of kept on going. It wasn't any master written out plan on my part. It was just fun to go help landowners improve their wildlife habitat. Right. And so I did that a long time. Literally one day I come home and my youngest daughter was about, oh, just a just an infant. And I sat in the floor with her rolling a ball back and forth and the phone rang. And as soon as the phone rang, she said, Daddy. And I realized she knew me from the phone ringing. That's how much I was traveling. Oh, wow. And I said, this has got to change. I'm very family-oriented. So my wife and I sat down and kind of prayed it through and decided that we would start giving away information that we should charge for on a show, on a web-based show, Growing Deer TV, and see if, you know, quality companies would come alongside us. And that was eight years ago. We're coming up right on our 400th episode. We make a new episode and publish it every week, 52 weeks out of the year. We've never had a repeat episode mm-hmm. in, in, in eight years, 52 weeks out of the year. That's true. Always some new and everyone says, how do you do that? It's really easy. We simply just film what we're doing that week. I mean, if we're planting, hunting, trapping, burning, whatever it is, that's what we film. So right. I can't tell you for sure what next week's episode is going to be about right now, literally, because I haven't finished out the week yet. Yeah. And, and, and we do it, and there'll be, you know, seven minutes long to 15 minutes long, whatever. depends on the week. We'll only share what we think is, you know, important. We don't have any filler. Or not, there's no sitting around the porch beating a drum mm-hmm. trying to fill up time. And um, anyway, it's been good. We've been very blessed. I have a very, very large audience now, and it's and I enjoy sharing information, so it's been really good for us. Well, a friend of mine turned me on to it about, oh, probably a couple of months ago, and I have been consuming it in large quantities. And so <laughs> I've really enjoyed it. I, I like your methodology for teaching of those habitat management techniques, and I've learned a lot about food plot planning and how to maintain those and, and get the most out of them. And so I've, I thoroughly have enjoyed it, and I appreciate you putting those together and distributing those out there. And I think it's a great resource 
for anyone listening to the show. Like I said, whether they own property or they lease property, shoot, even if you hunt public property, you can get on there and, and you can even pick up some, some tips and techniques on trapping that you can use on your public properties to help improve those. So, you know, well, I, I really appreciate you watching and, and sharing that. And that, you know, we, we have more content than we can put in an episode. So every day we're making posts on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or whatever. And, and if you'd like to see what we're doing during the week or what's going on, we, you know, stages are up, blah, blah, blah. You can just check those out and get instant information because we're trying to share as we're out there in the field doing it. We were out in the field this morning down in Arkansas and we shared from there. Yeah. And if we want to find you on Facebook and all the social media channels, just yeah, just go to Grant Woods. You can, yeah, Grant Woods, just okay. search on Grant Woods and you'll find us. Okay, perfect. Grant, thank you again very much for sharing your knowledge with us about some habitat management for wild turkeys and all the, like I said, all the sharing that you do on your website and your videos there. Yeah, I appreciate your time today and you ever head down towards Alabama and it's that time of year when the woods are blooming and starting to green up, you've got my phone number. You're welcome to call me and we'll see if we can find a tree to go sit beside. I look forward to that. I hope our paths cross soon. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you, Grant. Have a great afternoon. Uh, mm -hmm. All right. Goodbye. All right. I really hope that you enjoyed that interview. As I mentioned at the end of the call with Grant, I learned a great deal from speaking with him on the phone and I'm learning a ton from watching his videos on his website. I think, no, I don't think. I know you guys can learn a great deal from Grant and his crew as well. So check him out at growingdeer.tv. I don't think you'll be disappointed. Okay, so I promised you guys a story about a close encounter with a wild turkey. So here it goes. I bought my house in November of 1998. And when I bought the house, there was about, I'd say, five to maybe 600 acres of undeveloped timberland behind my house when I bought it. That next spring after I bought my house, it was actually opening day of turkey season, and I didn't have any property near the Birmingham area to turkey hunt. So I threw on my camo clothes, and I went into the woods back behind my house with no gun. I had zero desire to even attempt to kill a turkey back there, first because I didn't own the property, and I didn't have permission to hunt it, and there are houses around it, and I didn't want to just accidentally bebop in somebody's backyard with a shotgun in my hand. But I did know that the city that I live in had just purchased that property to build a high school, a middle school, and a park on it. And between the time that we had moved in and opening day of spring turkey season, I had seen deer and deer tracks in my yard at that time, but never any turkeys. Now, I was pretty confident that there were turkeys back there on that property behind my house, but I didn't know that to be a fact. So that morning when I ventured out into the woods back there, I had made it 50, maybe 75 yards from my property line. When I came to a ditch that had just a very small amount of water in it, and in the mud in the bottom of the ditch, I saw a huge gobbler track. I mean about the size of my hand, huge. So at that point, I felt pretty good about my prospects of finding turkeys in those woods. And I continued deeper into the woods. After I'd walked maybe a quarter of a mile from my property, I saw a turkey pitch down from the trees. The turkey hit the ground, and 
another turkey flew down and another one and another one and that kept going on until about 10 or 12 hens and at least one gobbler flew down the reason I say at least one gobbler flew down is because I left my binoculars at the house that day. I was not expecting much. Keep that in mind. But I left my binoculars at the house that day. And I know that one of those turkeys that hit the ground was a gobbler because right after it hit the ground, it went into full strut. There may have been more gobblers with that group. I do not know. Nor do I really care. So I stood there against the tree that I just happened to be leaning against when the turkeys flew down, and I watched those turkeys for a while. I watched them feed off down into a bottom off the top of the hill that they'd flown down on, and then I slowly followed them. And of course, I would let them get out of sight and then work around using the terrain to try to get back to where I could see them. Well, I lost them, and I ended up walking out into the area where the workers were logging and clearing for the schools in the park that was about to go into that property. So I was a little disappointed about that, but still kind of excited that I saw a turkey back there, quote unquote, in the backyard, even though it was not really my yard. It was a pretty good ways off. So I turned around and I went home, got dressed, went to work, didn't think anything else about it. Time ticks on by without me seeing any sign of any turkeys back there. Once that high school, middle school, and park were built, that took up pretty much the majority of that property back there. There's still, as part of the park, I would say 60, maybe 80 acres of woods that are just planted pines. Nothing really in there except walking trails, and it's just not great turkey habitat. So the thought of me seeing any turkeys back there from that point going forward really is slim. Now let's fast forward from there about 10 years. I'm driving to work one day and I get about a mile and a half from my house. I look on the side of the road and there's a gobbler standing there on the side of the road trying to get across. And the car in front of me slowed down. When that car slowed down, I guess the turkey thought that he had a chance. So he started flying and he flew across the road. I looked on the other side of the road where he landed, and there were a couple of hens over there. So that was my next turkey sighting in the area. That piece of property that that gobbler came out of shortly after that was turned into two new home subdivisions and a loss of about 200 acres of habitat. All right, we're going to fast forward again about five or six years. I'm on my way to work again one morning. It was actually the second day of turkey season, and it was raining, so I did not go hunting. On my way to work, I look into the woods off the side of the road, and I see a gobbler in full strut with about 10 hens in the woods just showing off for his girls. So I stopped and took some pictures and texted them out to my buddies. In fact, I saw those pictures about a week ago. And it brought back that memory. That was pretty cool. But since that time, insert another large subdivision of new homes and the loss of another 200 acres of habitat again. So over the years that I've been in my house, I've seen the area around my house from nearly being surrounded by hundreds, if not thousands of acres of woods and trees to scattered 20 to 200 acre wooded tracks with subdivisions all around. And while I see deer in my area, in my neighborhood, and in my yard very frequently, 
I very rarely see wild turkeys in the area. In fact, that's the only times that I've seen wild turkeys in the area, and I've never seen one in my neighborhood or yard until yesterday. So it rained yesterday off and on throughout the day, and I stopped by my house after lunch to check on the water level in my pool to make sure it had not gotten too high. And as I'm walking around the pool, looking at not only the water level, but also the flowers and the plants to see if there's anything growing out there to see if I've got any vegetables on my vegetable plants in the garden. I'm just generally messing around, killing a few minutes. I'm really not paying attention to what else is around outside of the pool area and the garden area. And I round one of the corners of the pool deck and I hear, and I took about two steps and the light bulb went off in my head as to what I just heard. And so I, I quickly look over to my right and I see the tail of a turkey run behind a bush in my yard. So I immediately reach for my phone and I eased around the side of that bush the direction that the that I saw the turkey going, but I didn't see the turkey. So I'm looking around, looking around, and I'm desperately trying to get a picture of this turkey. But I don't see where the turkey's running through the woods or even trying to sneak off. And I'm thinking, okay, this turkey has just slipped away from me somehow, and I don't know what's going on here. I need to see if I can find it. So I go back to where I saw the turkey. And when I get there, I look up, and the turkey's just standing there about 15 feet from me staring at me. I have on a white long sleeve dress shirt and gray dress pants, and there's nothing between me and this turkey, but the turkey's just standing there staring at me. So I get my phone out and I take a few pictures, and I started purring to the turkey with my mouth, and the turkey's just still standing there looking at me. So I thought, all right, there's something wrong with this turkey. This looks like a wild turkey. It does not look like a farm turkey. So I'm checking the turkey out, looking to see if I see anything wrong with it at all, and I don't. I mean, it looks fine to me. It looks like it's healthy. It looks okay. So, so the light bulb went off in my head that I've got a couple of bags of Milo that I have not been able to plant on my property in Chilton County because it's been so wet. So I went over underneath my deck where the bags of Milo are, and I opened one of them, and I grabbed a handful of Milo. And I walked back around to where the turkey was, and the turkey's still standing there. And I thought, as soon as I go to throw this Milo at that turkey, because I'm going to make a sudden move towards that turkey, that turkey's going to take off and it's going to be gone. Well, I threw the Milo at the turkey, and the turkey takes about three or four quick steps towards me and starts pecking the ground where I threw the Milo. I'm thinking that this turkey belongs to one of my neighbors whose lot touches my lot diagonally behind me. And he also borders the same large tract of property that I was telling you about earlier where I saw the turkeys years ago. Well, he's got chickens in his backyard. So I thought, you know what? That joker's gone and bought a turkey. And the turkey has gotten out of his backyard and is hanging around in my yard. And so that's what I'm dealing with here. So the turkey fed and fed and fed, was eating the Milo, and uh, what I didn't tell you is I actually walked back into my house and got my diaphragm call and started calling to the turkey a little bit, but the turkey was not interested in talking whatsoever. I never even heard the turkey make one purr at all. So other than the putt that the turkey did at me, I never heard any other sound come from the turkey. 
So it started raining a little bit harder, and I decided I would go inside. So I started to walk off. I got to the other side of the pool deck, and my next-door neighbor, Tommy, calls my name. And I turn around, and I look over at him. I said, hey, what's going on? He said, did you bring that turkey home from your hunting club? And I said, no, I'm not real sure where that turkey's come from, but I'm not 100% sure that's a wild turkey. He said, that turkey's been hanging around over there in your yard all morning long. And he said, I brought my wife out here and showed her the turkey. She'd never seen one before. And I said, well, I'm not, I have no idea where this turkey came from. I said, but it's got zero fear of humans at all. And I said, I just fed her. So she'd probably stick around for a little while. And I told him, I said, well, I think that that turkey belongs to the other neighbor on the other side who has the chickens. And he said, oh, that makes sense. So I went on back inside. And I worked from the house yesterday afternoon, so I got busy with work, and once the afternoon wrapped up and work wrapped up, my wife got home and she asked if I wanted to go meet some of her work friends for a drink and dinner. And so I said I would love to, but before I go and we meet your friends, I want to stop by the neighbor's house who has the chickens and talk to him and see if that turkey belongs to him. So she said, okay. So we did that. I pull up over at the neighbor's house, knock on the door. He comes to the door. We're chatting about chickens. And I said, well, I've got one more question for you before I leave. I said, do you have a turkey? And he said, no, let me tell you about that turkey. He said, that turkey showed up at my house about two weeks ago and has been hanging out with my chickens in the backyard. And at night, The turkey will fly up in a tree, will roost in the tree overnight, and in the morning she'd fly down and she'd hang out with the chickens. Well, of course, we're feeding the chickens and we would feed the turkey. The turkey was never scared of us, not even the first time we saw her. And she would hang out and eat what we were feeding the chickens during the day. He said we had some chicks at the time that she first showed up and she would hang around those chicks and just you know, kind of herd them in and and keep them corralled and keep them nearby and really kind of mother them. He said, I'm wondering if she might have lost her babies this spring. And so I thought, you know, that's a, a very good possibility that that happened. And so he said, well, I saw that the turkey was in your yard this morning, but I didn't want to just climb the fence and go on over into your yard. He said, I don't really know you and didn't want to just show up in your yard this morning. Plus, I'm not even sure I could get the turkey back, even if I went to your yard. She's still there. I said, no. I said, "Uh, have you looked in your backyard to see if she's back at your house? And he said, no, she's not back at my house. So anyway, the turkey moved on. I haven't seen the turkey, but we wrapped up our conversation. And I went out, got in the car, my wife and I went to dinner. And on the way back from dinner, I told my wife, I said, I've been thinking about this turkey. And I'm thinking that this turkey probably came from the state park that's a few miles from my house. And they have an animal rescue center over there. And I'm wondering if someone found that turkey when it was young, took it to the animal rescue service over there, to the animal rescue center, And they raised that turkey. And that's why the turkey has no fear of humans. So today I called the Wildlife Rescue Center. 
and I have yet to speak to anyone over there, but I'm sure they get wild turkeys in there quite often, but I'm going to ask them when the last time they had a wild turkey over there, and when the last time they let one go is. But what they'll do is they'll actually take birds that have been injured or birds that are sick and they will nurture them back to health and then they'll turn them loose in the wild. And so it makes total sense to me that that is probably what happened to that turkey, why it's so unfearful of humans and probably why it's wandering around in the woods by itself as well this time of year. So hopefully on next week's show, I'll have another update for you on the wild turkey story. And I'll let you guys know if I happen to see her again. I'd like to keep her around and feed her over the summer and talk to her a little bit. But who knows if she'll show back up. I'm not going to try to keep her around if she doesn't want to stay around. So I'm certainly not going to put her in a cage. She's a quote unquote wild turkey and she needs to be wild. So I'm going to let her do what wild turkeys do, but I'll probably continue to try to feed her in the backyard and and see if she shows back up again. So anyway, I'll update you guys as this story progresses, if it does progress, and give you a little bit more info there. But I was extremely excited to see that turkey in the backyard yesterday and get the opportunity to feed her and interact with her a little bit, even though she wasn't very talkative. So that's it. That's my story that I had to share with you. May not be too terribly exciting for you guys, but it was very exciting for me. (laughs) So anyway, actually, that's all that I have for you guys this week. But I'm going to ask you to do me one favor. The favor this week is this. If you learned something from today's show, if you would, please click the share button on your podcast player app and either email or text the link to this week's show to two or three of your turkey hunting buddies that you think will benefit from learning a little bit about wild turkey management. If you'll do that, that'll be a huge help to me and to the show, and I will much appreciate it. So that's it. That's all that I've got for you guys this week. Thank you guys so much for tuning in this week. I know that you have choices. I appreciate you spending your time with us. I hope you have a wonderful week, and I look forward to seeing you again next week. Goodbye. Thanks for tuning in. You were just listening to the Turkey Hunter podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please go on over to iTunes and leave a five-star review. And make sure to head over to www.iamturkeyhunting.com to subscribe for free turkey hunting tips, tactics, strategies, and product reviews to help you have a more successful turkey season. And stay tuned for upcoming episodes on hunting afternoon birds, how to film your hunt, and the breeding cycle of hens, as well as some guest interviews. Thanks again for listening. We know your time is valuable, and we appreciate you sharing some of it with us. See you next week.